This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So there's a misconception that if you're single, you are incomplete perhaps damaged, salvaged, and you won't be happy until you find your one. And that is not true. That is bullshit. It is a message that has been fed to us by media and advertising. The truth is, when you're single, you have the richest soil for growth. That's why I created this podcast. And unlike other podcasts, this one is host-driven, not guest-driven. That means I will be rotating health and wellness experts three times a week to give you the giant box of wellness crayons not just the primary colors, so you can start building a meaningful life. It's time to give singlehood a cape. Hi, I am Lindsay Burke, and I am joined today by Mari Connell, the founder of the Girls Empowerment Experience, which is a movement, mindfulness, mindset, and mental health program that empowers all girls and women with confidence, courage, connection and creativity for them to really find themselves. And she has personally turned her pain into purpose forever on her own self-love journey, which she is constantly talking about and sharing with others. She uses her personal experiences with overcoming eating disorders, substance abuse, perfectionism, and her own codependency in relationships to coach these girls and women and mentor others um, to be themselves, to love themselves, and ultimately create their own best lives. Um, So she is just so awesome. I'm excited to have her on the program today. She is also a martial artist, which is how I met her, uh, a CrossFitter, a weightlifter, a women's coach, and um, just the most incredible partner and mom. And uh, I, it's just been an, an honor to call her a friend for so many years. So I want to go ahead and uh, bring her on right now. Just excited to have you on the show because first of all, we go way back. <laughs> I just, I mean, can you believe it? It has been at least a decade. Um, back to our teaching martial arts days. It's just wild. Do you feel like, I don't even know who that woman was then <laughs> at times. Just like watching a movie sometimes. Like I know that was me, but sometimes I forget that that, that was me, you know, because it was such a different life. A different life, a different mindset. I know. I look at pictures and just can't believe we were babies. Oh. We were so young. Yeah. Yeah. I was 19. I would think I was in <laughs> college uh, and I knew nothing. <laughs> yeah. I just, yeah, just winging it. Just winging it. I mean, I just remember even looking up to other instructors and other um, the owner of the company and and all of these people and just just they were idols they were just I put them all up on pedestals like surely by the time I get to that age I'm gonna know what I'm doing and then here here I am looking back and thinking oh still don't know <laughs> still don't know still yeah. figuring it out so yeah I am so excited to have you on the show today um for so many reasons that could take up 10 episodes and we are most definitely going to be doing more episodes in the future. So folks tune in, but for today, if you are up for it, Mari, I really just want to focus on your personal journey. And I think you have such a powerful story about overcoming and about growth and about personal responsibility and taking responsibility for the life that you'd like to live and the person who you want to evolve into. And um, I just want to hear about, especially for those listeners out there feeling like, I just don't even know where to get started. I don't even know where I'm at and I feel so lost. Um, Who was that person before you became an empowerment coach, helping girls and young women really begin to take hold of their life and, 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 understand who they are and and what really matters to them. So um, I would love to just give you the floor and, and let you get started about your own growth. Who is, you know, what's that origin story? 
who was that young woman? Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's wild because this wasn't always a story that I could share freely or, you know, I'm going to tell this story with what will sound like so much confidence because I've practiced. I've told this story hundreds, if not thousands of times, but there was a time where this story was so shameful for me. I was so embarrassed. I couldn't even say the words eating disorder. Um, so I'm just so thankful and humbled to be able to share. I've found in my life in these last 10 years that it is vulnerability that brings us together as humans and openness and honesty that, you know, we are all so the same and so different, <laughs> but yes, uh, so much the same as humans. So thank you for having me and letting me share. Of course. Um, I, I appreciate you saying that too. I appreciate you yeah. acknowledging that it's not always easy and it's not always with confidence that we're experiencing these early stages of our life, that it's embarrassing and that we're stumbling and that there's a lot of shame around it that we have to overcome and this inadequacy that shows up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That it didn't start out with, well, this is something I've been through and I've taken hold of it, that there was a lot of pain and suffering and, and shame. Well, and it's amazing what starts to happen when you start sharing that. It's like you take the power away from those voices of shame and embarrassment, inadequacy, because the longer you keep your story inside, the more those voices are doing push-ups and squats and deadlifts in the <laughs> and they're getting stronger and stronger. And it's like, there's a monster under the bed and then you pull up the covers and you look and it's just this little girl and she just needs a hug and she just needs to be seen. So I, I think part of sharing your story is freeing yourself from that story, you know, and knowing that you always get to write your story, you know, and, and my story is so much a part of who I am. And it's, it's what I have created. I've created my life out of my story, but I also recognize that I can't hold on to the old story because empowering mm. that, right? And we always get to choose what we're empowering. So sure. I share this story because I know, not because I want to tell people what to do or what to think or how to think or who to be or what to be, but because I want to give people a space to sort of find themselves in bits and pieces maybe of this story where, oh my gosh, I've been through that or whoa, oh my gosh, I never thought of it that way or wow that makes total sense for me now in my life right because that's part of how I healed was finding other women and people who had been through similar things that I had gone through um and learning from them right and and still constantly learning right and yes I'm not there's no finish line there's no you know I'm not here to say oh I'm I'm enlightened. I'm the Buddha. I'm you know, <laughs> yes. oh, self-love thing. Um, no, it's yeah. an endless journey of self-love and evolution. And we're constantly learning, constantly growing. And the more I tell this story, the more I learn about myself. So um, as you said, I, I do coach and mentor mostly girls and women um, in confidence and self-love, but that was born out of my lack of confidence and self-love. Um, I deeply, deeply struggled with being myself from a very, very young age. I can remember being four and five years old and having, you know, what wow. would be considered panic attacks, but no one talked about wow. it. It was, um, you don't know what it is then. Yeah. It was, um, you know, toughen up or you're making a big deal out of it. There's nothing wrong. Um, buck up, uh, which, you know, bless my mom was her way of saying, like, you can do this, but I interpret it as there's something terribly wrong with me. You know, I shouldn't feel what I'm feeling. Don't cry. Don't cry. Don't cry. Right. Oh, I shouldn't be feeling this way. Um, yeah. I need to hurt. fix this. This is, must be broken. This yeah. is a thing that's wrong with me. That must be broken. Exactly. Um, and you know, I can, yeah. hurt coping with it as a perfectionist. Like I said, even when I was five and six years old, I refused to wow. play sports. 
I was so afraid of failing in front of other people or letting a team down or, you know, not being the best on the team. If I, if I wasn't the best, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't do it at all, which now I consider failing, right? That's, that is the only way you can fail is if you don't try. So I was self-sabotaging in that way, but I didn't understand that. Of course, I would say things to my mom. like, I don't want to wear the uniforms and no, I'm not going to do that on the weekends. And she had no idea that what I was actually grappling with was, perfectionism. Um, I'm so glad you say that actually, uh, Mari. I'm so glad that you, you even mentioned for, especially for parents out there listening to mm -hmm. hear that when your child is having some kind of pushback about things that are kind of ancillary like that, 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 that maybe we need to be really listening to what's going on under, underneath that. And also to be said, we still do that as adults too. Totally. <laughs> like, uh, we, agonize about what's aware and how we're going to do this, all these other things where the root of it is, am I going to be good enough? Am I well, going to be able to perform? I'm so afraid of not belonging that i out of belonging before I can even have a shot at it. Right. Because as Brene Brown yeah. said, no, until we belong to ourselves, we're not going to belong anywhere. And yes. uh, Maya Angelou, I love what she says. She says, even when we belong to ourselves, we belong nowhere and everywhere, right? Which is so beautiful. Yes. Um, and you're right. Children ask for love in the most unloving of ways. They ask for attention and to get their needs met in ways that oftentimes might sound like a tantrum or um, pushback, as you said, or even disrespect towards parents when really what they're needing is connection and to be seen and to be heard and to get curious yeah. and ask questions about what their experience might be. But it's really challenging for parents to do that if they're not doing that for themselves. Um, yes. My parents loved me and my brother deeply, um, but they really struggled with regulating their own emotions. There was no discussion of feelings in my family. There was, um, it was very unpredictable and chaotic growing up. My parents fought every day. Um, I never saw partnership. I never saw love, definitely didn't see affection. And I never saw repair or, you know, um, reconciliation after these conflicts. And so every day was very much like uh, this sort of, what's going to happen today feeling, you know, walking on eggshells, like what is going to trigger um, this sort of dysregulation in my home? And then it, it would just escalate and escalate and escalate until my dad would leave because that was his coping skill. Um, so for me early on, I learned number one, um, you know, that love is chaotic and love is dysregulated. And Number two, that people you love will leave um, and that you're not, you know, that you're not important is how I interpreted that. Um, mm. I also, you know, learned really early on that, you know, I would try to control and I would try to fix and I would try to mediate. And so that sort of led into my people pleasing, right? Like if I can just be good enough and if I could fix this, if I can make mommy and daddy stop fighting, then I'm good enough, right? Like then I'm the then I'm the fixer. Um, so that was sure. really early roots of my codependency and becoming a mesh sure. feelings. But like I said, I had no modeling of emotion, yeah, yeah. right? So um, these sort of panic attacks or tantrums or outbursts that I was having was all I knew. I didn't know any other way to cope with big feelings. And like I said, big feelings to me were bad, right? Because well, my okay. parents never talked about their feelings. It was just chaos. And then the next day we'd all pretend like nothing had happened, even though mm. we were hung over and puffy eyed and, you know, yes. empty and in mm. completely shot. Um, so this is kind of the, the home that I grew up in. And, and my mom is very, she and I are so similar. <laughs> um, she was very much also the perfectionist, you know, like her way mm. of coping and surviving was keeping everything together. And so she had to really, you know, she felt like she had to control in order 
for everything to not fall apart. Um, sure, not, sure. I learn about control that way, but I also internalized it in this way of like, I don't want to be controlled. Right. And um, mm. I didn't feel belonging at home. I also didn't feel belonging at school. Um, I went to a private school in third grade. I had three boys and three girls in my class. And in fourth grade, oh wow! But needless to say, the school shut down. <laughs> there was not a oh. kid in the school. <laughs> oh gosh! And I, there was no preparation. There was no. I don't recall anybody explaining to me that I was going to go from six kids to thirty-six kids, and you know, a school of twenty kids to five kids. And um, so I had been in private school, you know, my whole life up until then, and. I just remember stepping out onto the blacktop at recess in fourth grade and looking out at all of these kids and feeling so alone. And um, the friends that I had transferred with oh, from my yeah. private school had already made new friends. So I was like, oh my gosh, I have no one. Um, I, you know, I look different. I had this curly hair. I probably had hips and a booty in third grade. You know, I was curvy and athletic and I'm, I'm petite. I'm, um, even though I've got this raspy voice and these big feelings and, you know, I, I felt big feelings on both spectrums, the anxious, sure. also the excitement imagination. So I've got, you know, I'm just bursting with all of it. And, uh, and then I've got this feeling of, okay, I've got to be the good girl. I've got to make friends. I've got to be like everybody else. I've got to look like everybody else, um, in order to belong and not be abandoned essentially, because I'm sort of bringing in these abandonment wounds already at nine years old. Oh By that gosh. time, I had developed chronic migraines. That was another way that my body was- Oh, wow. My anxiety already. Um, I also- Your body's like, this is, it's already self-imploding. There's just, I, I, I was just imagining this bomb being stuffed into this <laughs> tiny little, little box. Like just, you've got so much- energy that needs to be let out and contained in a way that and, and managed and released in a way that's healthy and you're just being told to stuff it yeah good bad and you know good and bad yeah. but oh gosh so your body's like at such a young age I already can't it's already letting you know I can't contain all this yes when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I also think it was a way for me, so big. my first attempt at like getting my parents' attention. Um, while sure. I was really experiencing these migraines, I know now, obviously this is 20 something years later, but um, I really believe that our bodies manifest certain experiences and, um, you know, physiological or somatic symptoms based on our mental and emotional health. So I think as a child, I was learning if I'm sick, my parents will love me and pay attention to me with positive attention. And so I, I do think that I was sort of manifesting these migraines as a way to, to have that connection that I felt I was missing. And to be fair, you know, sure, which from my mom was always really positive. It was always, you're so special, you're so beautiful. Um, I remember being in the bathroom with her when I was really little and my dad often was very critical of her body and I would hear things from a very young age about ways she needed to change her body and her hair. Um, I heard them fight about um, infidelity and uh, other women in my dad's life. So at a really young age, maybe five, six years old again, I'm already learning a woman is supposed to look like in order to be loved and um and, and so anyway I remember yes. in the bathroom with her and she's kind of like she's looking at herself and I just have this image of her with tears in her eyes and um I think she had just come out of the shower and she's just sort of you know picking herself apart I'm not sure what she's saying to herself and and so I'm looking at myself and she goes oh but Mari 
God made your body exactly the way it's meant to be. You know, your body is perfect. But I wasn't hearing her words. I was seeing and, and absorbing the way she treated herself. Um, and, you know, she had a very, um, she struggled with food and exercise growing up, or growing up also as I was growing up too. Um, and so I internalized that as well, you know, and even though, um, you know, I don't think there was any, I don't know, maybe there was talk about good foods and bad foods, you know, and I, I remember always having nonfat milk and like smart balance butter <laughs> and we never had, you know, we never had like chips. I remember going over to friends' houses and they had these bo- huge boxes of chips or TV dinner. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh, this is the best thing. Such a treat. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So anyway, my relationship with my body was also very much from a young age, part of my perfection mm-hmm. and part of a way for me to control because I felt so out of control of what was happening at home and my feelings and um, all of these changes. And so um, when- it's one of the first things that we have access to, to control is totally. food. Yes. Um. And as girls, we, you know, are not just flooded with messages from our mothers about our bodies, but it's everywhere. And it's everywhere. I didn't have access to social media growing up. I was a 90s baby, so that just didn't exist. And now the access that girls have to comparison and, you know, obviously filters on social media and Photoshop and apps and like Facetune, um, we're just flooding, flooding girls with messages about what is quote, good enough, um, or quote, beautiful, right? And um, so, of course, I had those messages, but not to the extent that we have now, which I see as a, a major, major problem. And um, major I know, pan- problem. dare I even say, like, pandemic or epidemic that we have right now with young men, and, and young men, I'm sure. But I And seeing how powerful it was already yeah. not having yes. that and reaching this place in your life and realizing, oh my gosh, the impact that it had when it was just commercials on television that, you know, you saw on shows and things like that. And now to think they are just flooded with these ideas and these messages. Yeah. And yeah. um, Yeah. So when I was 12, my dad was a road cyclist and on Thanksgiving morning, my brother came running into my room. Dad's been in an accident. He's in the hospital. We got to go. So my dad had been um, with his road cycling group and was going down a hill and had gone over his handlebars. He was in a coma. His helmet saved his life, but he had bleeding in his frontal lobe, which is the part of your brain that, um, you know, impacts your impulse control and your speech and your higher processing. And as I mentioned before, my dad already really struggled with that. He had a very tough childhood himself with his own abandonment issues. And, um, you know, I think my, my dad is probably bipolar and struggles with his own mental health. So the reason I share that is because this accident really just exacerbated all of that. He was in coma, I don't know, one or two weeks and in the hospital. I remember going to see him and, you know, he had broken, I don't know how many ribs and half of his paralyzed and he was purple and blue in the ICU and we finally got to see him when he you know was transferred and he didn't know who we were um really really scary he could barely talk um and when he came back home everything just became so much worse um the fighting the dysfunction the unpredictability. It was like the volume had just been turned up past 10, you know? And so everything I was already struggling with just got an exclamation point on it. Um, by the time I was 13, I had lost like 30 pounds. Um, I was, uh, you know, I lost 30 pounds. I, I was starving myself. A growing teenager. I was, um, not eating. I was exercising every day on the elliptical in our garage. I, you know, had a ritual of how many calories I had to burn or how long I had to be on it. And then I would hydrate with Diet Coke afterwards. And, you know, I I basically 
I was holding on to life and I had yes. with me for sure. And one day my mom was, we were making the bed and I collapsed. I couldn't make the bed with her. And she said, oh, we've got, this is, you know, I'm 90 something pounds at this point. We've, we've got to go to the doctor. <laughs> so we, we finally go to the doctor um, and she basically gives me an ultimatum, you know, either you um, join an outpatient program this weekend and you start eating essentially, um, or you've got to go in inpatient. But I don't recall any explanation of what was happening or why I was experiencing an eating disorder or even the words being used. I mean, it was like very taboo. No one was even saying anorexic. Mm -hmm. You have a problem. You are coping through an eating disorder. You know, it was basically like, you know, one night I remember my dad, he's a doctor saying he was going to put a feeding tube down my throat. And it was just, it was like another problem that needed to be fixed, you know? And at this point I am, you know, I have so much anxiety and depression and hopelessness mm -hmm. and I'm so out of control. There are nights that I'm like running up and down our hill, screaming, crying. I'm, you know, threatening to end my life and locking myself in the bathroom and pretending to be dead. I'm writing my mom letters that, I, you know, that I'm running away and I'm never coming back. I'm very angry with my parents. I'm blaming them for the way that I am. I'm not taking any semblance of accountability because I didn't know how, of course. I'm 13. Wow. <laughs> and you're 13. It isn't yours yet. That's the problem. That's the problem is it wasn't yours to hold by yourself yet. Um, yes. I remember them telling me to pack my bags and I remember the sweatshirt I was wearing and I remember the Coldplay CD I'm listening to in the car and I arrive at UCLA. I remember being in the office in the intake room and, you know, they're basically all just talking around me. I'm sitting there, a human, yes. <laughs> a, a very mature, yes. wise beyond my years because I had to be at that point. Um, and everybody's just talking around me. Like I'm not even there. And my parents leave and I remember, you know, they take my shoelaces, my eyeliner pencil, and I'm in this room and there's barred windows and it's dark and cold and yeah. scary. And I just remember thinking to myself, and I, you know, I don't know if this was really my voice or some kind of channel. Like I said, I, I don't know how I could have possibly known this in this moment of desperation. And you know, complete hopelessness. But there is a moment, whether it's the first night or several nights in, where I just remember looking out and thinking to myself, okay, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to get out of this place. And when I do, I'm going to use this to help other girls like me. I'm going to somehow help other girls who struggle um, with eating disorders and being themselves and family and loving themselves. And I've got to, I've got to do something with this. <laughs> And I always look back on that moment and I have no idea wow. how I knew that, but it's something, you know, that obviously has stuck with me my entire life. I'm 32, almost 33 now. So it's been two decades since that experience, but that was my experience wow. with mental health and, you know, much against my, um, agreement, I was put on antidepressants. I then sort of learned that and I, I don't, I want to be really careful here not to say that medication or pharmaceutical interventions are not helpful for some people. But for me, I interpreted this as when I feel bad, there is a pill that can make me feel better. I was not yet right. receiving nor probably not open to other coping skills yet, right? Like I was learning how to survive. Sure. But I was not learning about my trauma, why I developed an eating disorder, other than, you know, like the basic, oh, you're trying to control the out of control. You're trying to distract yourself with food instead of thinking about what's really going on. But I wasn't getting into the nitty gritty of, you know, who I was, why this was happening, you know, why I had developed this coping mechanism. Um, and then how to actually change and how to be who I wanted to be. Um, I wasn't learning those coping skills. I was just learning the very basics of like, you gotta eat, 
and here's, you know, here are these pills yeah. to take to feel better. There's something wrong with your brain. And that was my new story. There's some, you know, again, there's something wrong with me. Um, my brain doesn't work like other people's. So I need to take these pills to make it, quote, work. Um, and if I feel bad, I just take a pill and then I feel better. So this, so the story becomes you're broken. You're broken. Your experience, there's no room for that. And hearing your story and really understanding what's underneath all of that, it's invalidated, it's dismissed, it's minimized. And there must be something wrong with you. And all of these other people are going to make decisions on your behalf mm -hmm. without in, empowering you or including you and integrating your input into this experience of healing. We're going to just give you a pill and we're going to call you broken. And then we're going to take more control mm -hmm. by, by letting you know you're broken, you can't trust that something's wrong and we'll, we'll fix you by giving you a quick fix. There was just, I mean, you're I mean, I feel like I'm just hearing one, a lot of the flaws with the yeah. mental health system for one, that's been, that still very much exists. And then, you know, in, in parents and the adults who haven't done the work themselves and being able to see what the, the real problem is. And I'm just, I'm just taken aback, Mari. I mean, I just, I'm so glad you're sharing this because you're not the only one who's gone through this, but um, I'm so, I'm so actually incredibly amazed by, I mean, it just breaks me to hear this story. I can just imagine being in the hospital setting at that age when we are so fragile and we're trying to come into our own. We're trying to be the adults, you know, and start to think like adults and be independent and to, you know, begin to take self-responsibility and to start to, for you to enter into that stage, but we still really need that adult support. We really need that guidance and mentorship. And usually I say, as we enter our teenage years, really it becomes kind of a collaboration of growth because we're starting to hand over more responsibility to the, these children while they're still, I mean, they've got the just like martial arts, it's like they're still wearing the pads. We're, we're, we're really padding them up so that when they fall, we're there and we're able to say, hey, that hurt. Hmm. Yeah, here. <laughs> but we're able to support them in that growth. You weren't getting that support. You're getting the hits. And then you're being told it's because something about you mm -hmm. is flawed. Um, I mean, just powerful. But for you to enter that state of it actually tells me how much suffering you were experiencing that you entered the state of nobody's really going to help me. Yeah. I'm going to have to well, help and myself think, and maybe one day I'll help someone yeah. else. I honestly now also, I remember, and I, you know, I, I thought I, I, I felt so guilty about this. And so like, I, I felt again, like, wow, there is something so effed up about me that I literally thought to myself, well, if yeah. I get sick enough, you know, if I starve myself enough, then I'll have to go to the hospital. And there was a part of me that wanted that. I so badly yes. wanted somebody to just take care of me and be there for me. And so there was part of me that wanted to go and press yes. pause on life. I wanted to, I wanted to be out of school, right? Like now I'm in middle school eighth grade. Yes. Right. So now we know there's like the groups that you sit with at lunch and who you walk to class with and who you sit with at recess. And I was in quote popular yes. group, but I was not quote in it. I was, I had so many friends in so many different walks of, gr you know, groups in school I was obviously yes. an overachiever. So I was in all honors class. I had so many friends who were really smart and sweet, but I didn't want to be in their group because they weren't, quote, popular, right? I thought I needed to be the best again, right? Popular equals best. So I sort of tried to force myself into that group, but yes. they weren't inviting me to things on the weekends, of course, because I wasn't really aligned with them, right? I wasn't actually friends with them. I was, I just thought that was who I was supposed to be friends with. So then I felt because I'm not really included in anything. I belong everywhere but nowhere, as I said before, but I'm myself yeah. at all. 
my relationship with the world is performative and it's to it's to be this person other people yes. want from me yes yeah um and so yes. that was you know i wanted to go to the hospital so that i could press pause on that and not be in that uncomfortable experience of feeling alone and feeling different um so there yeah and let's be real i mean we all experience yes. those moments all the way through life where we just, oh, I just want to be taken care of or I need a break. And I think I talk about this with clients all of the time, how important it is for us, instead of seeing that as a flaw or as us being broken, to listen to that because that is our body saying, I talk yeah. about foundations and scaffolding all the time, that, that what is missing is the foundation and the scaffolding that can hold up that stage of life that you are trying to be in, that you're supposed to be in, you're telling yourself, I'm supposed to be here, that maybe there's still some work there that needs to be done. That when you're saying, okay, when I'm, we're talking about regression, regressing, um, when our children go through regressions, when we go through regre regressions, that really what's missing is scaffolding. So you're trying to perform at school. You're trying to be a friend. You're trying to be the, a student but the scaffolding and those foundations of relationships and secure attachment and self-awareness and, and, and self-confidence, the scaffolding's not there. And so you can pretend, you know, to a certain degree, but after a while it's exhausting yes. because it's not coming from a place yes. of true strength. It's coming from that place of, I have to put on a show so that I can survive. And it's, it's exhausting. It, mm -hmm. it, it eats us alive. You can't. We can't keep it up. Yeah. You know, ultimately I also see it yeah. as we're not being true to our, right. So that self abandonment or that self betrayal, um, that is one of the greatest conflicts that we face as humans yeah. when who yes. we are truly is not reflected in who we're being, you know, that's it feels yes. like a civil war inside of us, right? But I didn't know that at 13. Yes. I didn't understand. And I didn't, you know, unfortunately, the mental health program that I was receiving wasn't, I don't know if it was even, I don't know if there was anybody yet who was doing this work. Maybe. Um, but I think still, not many. <laughs> in a very old model of new. mental health at that time. You know, I was, yes. like I said, I'm a nice so it was, Medical model. this was over, you know, this was 20 years ago. So um, we weren't talking yet about those things. And we also weren't giving young people tools to learn about being themselves or live life on life's terms and understand that there is nothing wrong with anxiety and depression, especially as a 13 year old. <laughs> There's nothing broken about you. There is a lot broken about what's happened to you that's created this scenario. But your body having depression and having anxiety is it telling you it's not the problem. It's the symptom letting you know there's something else that's really, really not healthy for you right now. Exactly. It's like eating exactly. poison. Your body has all these bumps and has this allergic reaction. It's like saying the allergic reaction is the, the you know, is what's broken. It's no, your body's telling you you've been eating poison. <laughs> and if you come back to yeah. the, um, you know, the introduction now of pharmaceutical drugs, it was like this Band-Aid on a deep wound. Yes. And we were just, you know, I was picking the scab every week. I'm going to therapy just basically saying the same things, blaming my parents every time. Okay, we'll see you next week. We'll blame your parents some more, right? Like I'm just, I'm getting further and further away from my parents instead of learning how to build connection, which was what I needed. Um, and instead, yes. like you said, I am empowering this story of brokenness and victimhood. And, um, and, and so instead of, um, really healing and moving forward. I actually, for the next 10 years, um, I dig deeper and deeper into 
depression and anxiety and struggles and further and further away from myself. So now I'm not just battling eating disorders, which would continue to evolve and plague me for the next decade. Um, But now I have learned, oh, I can just take a pill and then I can numb and escape and I don't have to feel bad. So now I'm going to my psychiatrist and manipulating, right? So I can't sleep, take a muscle relaxer. Have anxiety, take Xanax. Can't focus, take Adderall. Crash from the Adderall, take something else to feel better, right? And um, and not only that, but now I'm in high school. So I'm introduced to pot and alcohol and boys. And so I'm trying in every way that I possibly can to numb, escape, feel good enough. Um, you know, I'm I am seeking attention from boys through the clothing that I wear or don't wear. Um, I am still very performative in my grades and you know college applications and which college I was go to was like mm-hmm. one of the hardest times of those four years, right? In any case, um, I end up getting rejected from the two schools that I wanted to go to. And of course, this sends my world upside down because I had done everything. I had the 4.0. Yeah. I had volunteered in third world countries. I was the editor in chief of paper. I wow. was in every AP that you possibly could. I went to school at 7 a.m. every day for calculus. Um, I was an athletic trainer. So worked with athletics and sports. I had a job. I had volunteer club. I mean, I did everything and I still didn't. Oh yeah. All the boxes. Perfect. Yes. Every teacher loved me. They still didn't know, you know, most of them didn't know really what I was still really struggling with. And, um, I think there were a couple that I had opened up to who were so lovely and supportive of me. And, and yet I was still using this victimhood card, you know, to, when I got overwhelmed or couldn't make a deadline, I was, believe you, like, believe me, having mental breakdowns in teachers' offices so that I could get extensions, you know, on my work. Um, so I had learned. I had learned how to play up, what I, you know, great and story. story. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I end up at Occidental College, which, like I said, didn't want to go there. Um, too small, too close to home. My mom had gone there, didn't want to be there. Uh, but that's, that's where I finally chose to be. And thank God I did because, uh, you know, I really believe that everything happens for a reason in our lives. And there are these breadcrumbs, right, that lead us to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. So although I'm still really struggling Mm -hmm. with my body image, of course, substance and alcohol is rampant in college because everything is so much more accessible. Um, I am, you know, I'm seeking attention from boys. I'm still an athletic trainer, so I'm working with the football team and I'm like, you know, hooking up with a different boy all the time because I thought that that was what love was. Um, I'm still seeking, you know, outside of myself. I just had to get a part-time job in addition to the athletic training job that I was already doing. Um, but that was kind of my nature. I, like I said, I started working when I was 15 in restaurants and I was just used to having that extra money and, and probably wanted it for weed and booze and things like that. But, um, in any case, I Craigslist and find this part-time job at Crud Kids. And I'm like, oh, this is perfect. Um, I can work with kids. I thought I wanted to be a therapist because, you know, still am holding on to that mm-hmm. 13-year-old girl who wanted to help others like herself. So I'm majoring in psychology. I am pre-med. I think I want to be a psychiatrist. Oof, so glad that that didn't work out. Um, <laughs> I, um, so I'm like, oh, this is perfect. So I take the job and I'm there uh, on the weekends teaching. You know, I, I finally tell them, oh, you know, I grew up doing martial arts. I think I'd like to teach because I was just working at the desk and they go, oh yeah, we'd love to have you teach. And so I'm teaching on the weekends and um, I end up getting involved in an organization called Kids Kicking Cancer. So I start working at Children's Hospital every week. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am, you know, I'm going into Children's Hospital every week and 
teaching children meditation and karate and how to love themselves. And then I'm getting in my car and lighting my little pipe and smoking weed on the way out the parking lot, you know, and I'm showing up to karate classes, deathly hungover. And I am living this sort of double life um, where I am so loved. And so as you probably remember, I always had a happy face and, you know, bubbly personality, which many of us who are struggling huge classrooms they were just throwing kids at at Mari's classes because she just brought so much energy to the classroom so I think there was like a max we were only supposed to treat or excuse I say treat we were only supposed to teach it's my it's my new language now but we were only supposed to have about 16 kids per classroom and there'd be like 24 kids in some of her classes they would just be back you know I was I was yes. so easy for me. Yes. This was my gift. And, um, you know, this is something that I tell yes. young people all the time, that when you find your gift, you have to share it. And I was, I had never yeah. felt more myself than I did when I was teaching. Um, and I really liked that version of myself. And yeah. so it was really hard because, mm-hmm. like I said, there were these two worlds. I was an addict. I was, you know, I had eating disorders. I was codependent in my relationships. I was um, still a perfectionist and drowning in college. And then I was here, this awesome teacher, inspiring, motivating, uplifting, you know, aligned with my work as a teacher, not just teaching karate, but this particular school was really unique in the sense of really instilling life skills, as they said, into kids in terms of communication and um, positive reinforcement and mindset and um, all of these, you know, elements that (laughs) made no sense, really, if you look at it from the outside for me, because I wasn't embodying really any of those things in my other life. But I was here as a teacher. So this was kind of the reason I shared is because this is kind of you know, I think a really important seed in my self-love journey. Yeah. I was just going to say it. I, I feel like sometimes we have these moments in, in our life where, whether purposefully or accidentally, we, we get reparented. <laughs> we get to redo a little bit of what was lost in our childhood. And sometimes it really happens when we're actually in the leadership position, when we're in the teaching position. And all of a sudden you get to see Mm. the child as a child. And we kind of project onto that child of, oh my gosh, I I could never speak to them that way. And just hearing ourselves parent or teach a child and speak to a child in the way that we really needed to be spoken to ourselves, there's healing in that. And and especially these messages of, you know, self-respect and love and, you know, being able to say those things over and over again, where I think, you know, patience and, you know, some of these attributes that maybe we didn't get at all. And then saying it over and over again, it starts to to heal our own inner child that didn't get those. And we call this acting as if, right? It's not fake it till you make it. It's different. It's you're acting as the person that you want to be. You're, Mm -hmm. you know, doing the footwork or you're acting in alignment with who you want to be. And so then you sort of, you know, by we all know the saying, you know, if you want to learn something, teach it, right? So you start to relearn and start to realize, well, wait, if I'm teaching this, I want to be this too right so mm-hmm. I yeah you naturally benefit that, from it um because i'm teaching it so i want to actually be in practice myself um and i start to sort of dabble in like bodybuilding.com workouts i am very much overweight at this point um really inflamed because of all of the you know drugs that i'm doing and the booze that i'm doing. And I'm like Mm. kind of yo-yo dieting, but I'm starting to like dabble in fitness a little bit. And I have a friend who's teaching me how to use dumbbells and I'm starting to follow these workouts that, you know, are um, more fitness related than how many calories you can burn. So I'm going to make like tiny little changes. And um, 
Oh, by that time I had totally dropped the pre-med thing. I had flunked organic chemistry so many times and withdrawn so many times. I decided to let that go and, and get my PhD instead. Um, I forgot to mention that, which was, that I get that. <laughs> I'd rather yeah, shoot like, myself in the kneecap than take another organic chem class. Yeah, I sit in the lab my brain works. And I would stare at the same page for no joke six hours because I could not reconcile not understanding yeah. it. Like I needed it to make sense. But the thing about organic chemistry is that there's things about it that don't make sense that you have to just accept. Right. And this would be yes. a theme in my life where yes. you know, accepting things that don't make sense, you can't make <laughs> logical sense of, but I have a very masculine brain in that way of like, well, I need it. I need to see the steps, you know, like I need to see the, the, the analytics yes. or whatever. So, um, yeah, I would drive myself crazy. I would, and part of that mm. could have been the Adderall too, but I, I would just hyper fixate on it. Um, so letting go of that was really hard for me, but it was yeah. the universe's way of redirecting me slowly, but surely. Um, when I'm 21, maybe my senior year of college, um, there is an incident on a family vacation. You know, my parents' relationship had continued to spiral downward, especially as my brother and I were not in the house anymore. Um, it was so hard for me to leave my brother there alone with and not be there to sort of mm -hmm. take care of him and help him. Um, and he, you know, was struggling in mm -hmm. his own right, of course. <laughs> um, and so my dad was really struggling at this point and having, he was showing signs of really struggling in the choices that he was making. Um, you know, some might call it a manic episode that lasted several years. And um, we, yeah, we went on a vacation oh. as a family. Um, my boyfriend at the time played football uh, for a school in New Jersey and they had a game in New York. And so we went as a family um, and my dad disappeared the day that we got there. And this was not unusual for my dad vacations. He would go off and do his own thing. And we just, you know, that was just the way it was. Um, my brother was very quiet that day and beside himself, but nobody really thought anything of it. We went to dinner. My dad still didn't show up. Nobody could get a hold of him. It was very odd at that point. We were like, okay, this is different. Um, the next day we were getting on the subway. It was rainy. Yeah. I was listening to melancholy Sarah Bareilles in my headphones and, um, you know, it was very New York and, um, I was you know, still, <laughs> like I said, very much still struggling. And I just knew that's, and I'm very intuitive and sensitive and, you know, probably had been since I was a really young, young kid. And I just felt something is going to go down today. Like something is not right. And we got on the subway and my dad starts to say to me, hey, what if you and me moved here? And I was like, what? Like all of us? And he's like, no, how about just me and you? And I was like, uh, no, <laughs> what are you talking about? So we get to this bar um, right outside of the stadium and my parents go outside and they start fighting. And my boyfriend at the time, his, his family is there at the bar too. And I go outside to try to fix it, as I always did, you know, to try to mediate. And they are going at it about a woman that my dad had been with the day before. And he's been having an affair with her. And he's leaving our family. And, um, you know, my mom is broken. She is, my mom is such a strong woman. And I had never seen her in this way, just emptied, completely emptied. And I looked at my dad and I think I, I don't know if I punched him or I slapped him. I can't remember. And I just said, leave, go leave. And he left and I proceeded to get completely wasted. Um, I then found out that my brother knew that my dad had been with this woman all day the day before. And so he was just holding that in because my dad had asked my brother to go with him 
Uh, my brother was like 18 at the time and poor kid, you know, was holding on to that. Mm. And the rest, of, I mean, my mom was such a warrior, you know, she wanted to go yeah. along with the rest of the day. And I was just, yeah, I was wasted, but so myself, I was so broken too, because this just was the pinnacle of the abandonment wounds that I had felt from my dad my entire life, you know, and, and my dad did the there's just so much there that, yeah, I just, I can't, I mean, there's so much there between the power that you have to say go and your dad to go. I mean, the, the secrecy, the, uh, j your mom being broken and then to still try to continue through the weekend as right. if the biggest right. rupture ever hasn't just, ha I mean, just how much containment your family attempted to have to, and that, to stay okay. That and how much life weight you two carried you know i mean that was that was that was just yeah like you heard that was just what we did right so i didn't know anything different mm. um and i'm still self medicating right. so heavily at this point right between drugs and alcohol so yeah you gotta so do I'm something so got that layer going on um yes. And I remember, you know, telling after the game, I remember telling my boyfriend at the time about it and, you know, bless him. Like he just didn't, he didn't have the resources or the tools to be there for me. Um, we were in a very codependent relationship, of course, because I didn't know any different. Um, you know, well. in that moment too, I felt like, gosh, yeah. I have no one, you know, I am just alone completely alone yes. and um so the the divorce that followed was really really ugly and volatile and you know um really scary at times and disruptive and then after I graduate college um which is you know that year like I said I decided to move back in with my mom to be with her to save money um the karate school offers me a full-time gig basically. And they say, Hey, you know, we want you to run this school in Redondo beach. It's three minutes from my mom's house and where I grew up. Um, we want you to basically open and close the doors. We want you to teach, you know, five days a week. It'll basically be like your own little school. And I'm like, absolutely not. No way. I'm going to get my PhD. You know, I've got to be successful. Oh, um, wow. That's all I you were still you know, there. Yeah. As a doctor. I, I didn't know any other way to be successful except go to college, go to grad school, you know, be a pro quote professional um, and make lots of money and have this title and these credentials and that success. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I just couldn't shake it. And it was like a little bird yeah. that was on my shoulder who kept saying like this way whispering like, no, you're going to do this. You got to do this this way. And I was like, you're a crazy little bird. That makes no sense. I can't be a karate teacher. Like that's insane, but I just couldn't shake it. And of course I know now that was my intuition and, uh, my first experience probably with hearing my intuition and it not making a lick of sense, but following it anyway. And yes, it um, feels right what we're going to do is we are going to take a pause in this story and i want to continue because this can be our part one this is really setting up to i'm really glad we were able to stop at this point because this is really setting up for this part two of your story which is that point after you really began to listen to yourself and really began to hear your own voice and listen to your gut, listen to your own intuition and what followed that, which is really powerful, which broke a lot of rules <laughs> and changed your whole trajectory. And what I'd really like to do in the next episode, if not next two episodes with you, is really dive into your relationships, because we've really talked about these foundational relationships that kind of set up who you identified as and how that showed up in relationships and, and how chaotic that 
you know, created this kind of world of how you engaged in your relationships and how that shifted once you began to listen to yourself, once you began to really identify your own values. So we'll kind of dive into a little bit more of that part two of this story of who you became, but also how that began to impact the dynamics you had with friendships, with your you know, future partners, what went well, what, what didn't go well, but what you learned throughout that process. So we're going to talk a little bit about that in the next part of our, oh, our, our series together. So for you listening, I'm so much so love excited. holding the space for me to share this part of part one of my story. You're right. It definitely informs what would come next, which would be sort of my second rock bottom and what catalyzed my journey into self-love and then healing my relationship paradigms and you know the chaos that I had lived in and and sort of sent me into my ideal relationship which is part of where I am now so I'm really excited to share that piece of how to change and what or at least you know how I experienced change and hopefully that can help somebody else if they're curious or they feel lost and they don't know what step to take next. I hope that the next part them with that. Yes. And just like you said at the beginning that I think is really important oh my is God. you're still in the journey. Oh, if you're not fully cooked, it's not done yet. It's not done yet. But what's different is as we begin to listen to ourselves, the healing begins to happen in real time and the repair, the repairs can happen in real time. And so the resolution and the authenticity that can show up in future relationships once you've really done that work begins to create this momentum in future relationships that creates a sense of satisfaction because you're already on that side of things. So it doesn't mean that conflicts don't arise. It doesn't mean that you're totally done in your evolution or that it's, you know, there's no knight in shining army. There's no happy ending in that regard. It's more this element of self-awareness and, and self-assurance and that faith in your own ability yeah. to be able to handle you hard things that shows up in shining armor, not self-trust. You are in shining armor and I didn't you know I was always looking for my knight in shining armor I because of where I came from and what I had experienced I was always looking for somebody else to save me and I didn't realize that that felt until I did and then yeah you become the parent in your story you become the adult that's now able to reparent yourself and to support yourself and to love yourself and we aren't you know, we don't live in a vacuum that we are a social species and we need those support systems around us, but we also know how to get them. And we also can discern who they are and how they show up and what it feels right, uh, what feels healthy and what feels good and what doesn't feel good. And we're able to discern when something is someone else, you know, it's their stuff and our stuff and some of that, that wisdom that, that develops uh, when we do some of this if work. Anybody so, is listening yeah, and you need help yeah. or you just need somebody to talk to or somebody to listen, please reach out anytime. I, I really believe in that, the healing together and it helps me to help you. And um, so if you're listening and you want to chat, if any of this resonated for you or you have questions or you just, you want to know more, um, you can find me at Mari Helena Instagram. You can find me at girlsempowermentexperience.com. Um, or at Girls Empowerment Experience on Instagram. So please feel free about anytime, really even awesome. just to say hi, or you know, if you need, if you just need a friend to know that you're not alone. Um, I'm always, always here for you. And when she says that, she means it. She is one of the best of the best, and and. For those of you who have been listening today, we are so happy to connect with you, uh, to everyone in the audience. And I don't care what anybody says. It is personal. <laughs> These relationships are real and they matter. And this is how we stay connected. We are a social species and we need one another and we need each other's stories. And thank you so much, Mari, for sharing your journey and some of the tougher parts of your journey so that 
the rest of us know we're not alone in it. And I cannot wait to share more of your story over the next couple of weeks. And of course, you guys can stay in touch with me as well at Lift Therapy. And I look forward to talking with you all next time. Thank you. Thanks so much, Mari. I hope that episode was helpful. Hey, listen, if you want to share your singlehood journey, if you've gone somewhere, come back. If you have revelations and wisdom, please share your story. It's going to help other people. Nothing makes us feel more connected than hearing other people's stories. So just send me the audio of your story and you could just record it directly from your phone and email it to theangrytherapist at gmail.com. Also, if you want our Single on Purpose newsletter, go to singleonpurpose.life. That's singleonpurpose.life. You will get tools and articles and other people's stories and also uh, Zoom links to private gathers. So if you want to join our community, go to singleonpurpose.life. Thank you for listening. Be well. We hope you tell a friend. Hey, before you go, I want to invite you to the Single on Purpose private community online. It's off of social media. No ads, no algorithms. We got forums. We got live groups. We got webinars. And we have social hangs. We also have offline in-person hangs happening soon. So check us out. Go to singleonpurpose.life. That's singleonpurpose.life. And I will see you inside.